Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 1. This is going to be Episode 3, the fourth total. But, you know, our first episode was a zero read um, introduction to the podcast, introduction to Absalom Absalom, a little bit of personal history about how we interacted with the novel as college kids. Um, and, of course, one of the things that... that you know, make, I guess the, the single defining moment, the Caddy Compson, I mean, Cat, yeah, Caddy Compson climbing up the, the tree and looking into Damity's funeral and Quentin and the other boys seeing her with her muddy trousers. Like, just like Faulkner had his, like, m- moment uh, that defined the whole novel for Sound of the Fury, so too I had that moment of seeing Whitney for the first time talking about Absalom Absalom in uh, a college English class and the rest, as they say, is history. So um, we talked about Rosa Coldfield in episode one. We talked about Thomas Sutpen in episode two. This is episode three. We're going to talk about Charles Bond. We're going to talk about Henry Sutpen. Now we'll, we'll mention Judith Sutpen and probably Ellen Sutpen, maybe even Thomas Sutpen as well. Uh, but we're really going to focus directly on the, the interaction with, the friendship with, uh, and spoiler alert, the, the other interactions uh, and relations that uh, Charles Bond and Henry Sutpen have. Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit about Shreve uh, and, and Quentin as they reenact the situation between Charles and Henry. So we'll talk about them a little bit in this, in this particular episode, but we're going to do a whole episode just about Shreve and Quentin coming up next. So uh, we're in the 18... 18- 50s and 60s, and the next episode will be in the 1909-1910 uh, yeah, uh, school year at, at Harvard University. So um, without further ado, here we go. Uh, Charles Bond, Whitney, f- first just statements, thoughts, ideas about Charles Bond. Um, well, he's a little bit we kind of similar to Sutpen in the way that he is a little difficult to pin down and he's thought of differently by different characters. I mean, I will say one thing that seems fairly consistent among the characters who talk about him, um, whether it be Rosa or Jason or Quentin or Shreve is a a kind of glamour that's associated with him, like a, uh, a foreignness, you know, something that's a bit like outside the the Mississippi South, the version of the South that we're kind of living in in the rest of the novel. Yeah. Uh, on page 74 in my copy, uh, Jason Compson, Quentin's father, says he is the curious one to me. And so I wanted to start with Charles Bond because he's older than Henry, but also because I think he is in a way the most ephemeral character in this novel. Um, he does exist. He does live. He does die. Now we'll talk about why he dies, probably most of this podcast. But he really is, just like Sutpen, he feels very removed from the narrators. And I think that's why Jason says he is the curious one to me. Because Jason loves to speculate. I mean, almost everything that, that Quentin's father, Jason, says is speculation. And so we'll talk about, you know, why he speculates so much about 
Henry and, and Charles and Charles and Sutpen. And, and of course, we'll talk about Sut, uh, Shreve and Quentin uh, speculating about Charles and Henry in relation to Sutpen. And, and, and there really is just so much of these, these two characters, and especially Charles Bond, that feels just conjectured. I mean, it does. It does not feel based in in much reality. It just feels like they're trying to construct a, a, a hero or, or maybe even a savior. Um, but uh, what we do know about him is he comes from New Orleans. He's ten years older than Henry, uh, so he's twenty eight years old when he goes to college. By the way, New Orleans is in Louisiana. I know you know that, Brendan Sumich, but for the rest of us, sometimes we forget. Mississippi is a separate state, so why on earth would someone from New Orleans go to college at Ole Miss? And that's that's a great question, and, and, and Shreve and, and Quentin uh, make an effort to, to answer that question. Uh, but that's that's where he meets Henry Sutpen. So Henry Sutpen is 18 years old. He goes off to college to study law. So they're studying law together, and really, it's a it's a world class bromance. Um, I, I don't know if they were, you know, playing Star Wars Rogue Squadron uh, for six hours a day like my college roommate Brendan and I were, but um, in terms of what they were doing, well, it seems like. Charles was introducing Henry to, I guess, his lifestyle. Like, he was ushering him into living like Charles Bond, and Henry is just seduced by it, as I think any younger person is susceptible to getting kind of pulled into the confidence of someone that's older. Now, you might say 28 years old, starting college, mm, shouldn't, shouldn't he be insecure about that? Well, no, but it is, it is very odd that he waits until Henry's old enough to go to college, to go to college. Is it coincidence? Is it intentional? That's a great question. And so um, we find out first and foremost that Charles Bond is a student at Ole Miss studying law. He's 28 years old. He's from New Orleans. And I think New Orleans is a significant place because it is not really Southern. It's in the South, but it's got this very exotic... um, otherworldly, you know, it's a French place. It, it doesn't feel like an Anglo-Saxon, waspy, um, you know, American place. It, it feels like an international city. And so um, there's certainly that sense of, um, like I said, exoticism appealing to Henry about Charles because he seems so cosmopolitan compared to Henry, who has, you know, really never been outside of Jefferson, Mississippi. It said he'd never even been to Memphis at that point, and Memphis is not very far off from, from mythical Jefferson. So um, let, let's get started with uh, the college days, and then we'll, we'll talk about when Henry, when Henry brings his best friend home for Christmas. So when he talked to us about uh, Charles and... and um, Henry, as, as they're becoming friends, what were your impressions? What kind of ideas do you have about them, you know, starting at that point? Um, well, I think Jason Thompson probably gives the fullest treatment of how, why they became friends or why Henry is so fascinated by Bond. Um, like, for example, I'm looking at page 74 and 75. Um, it talks about... Bond watching 
the Sutpen family from behind a barrier of sophistication in comparison with which Henry and Sutpen were troglodytes. And then on the next page, it says, um, he had a certain reserved and inflexible pessimism stripped long generations ago of all the rubbish and claptrap of people like Sutpen and Henry in the cold fields who have not quite yet emerged from barbarism. Now, so Jason Compson himself is very pessimistic or nihilistic or something like that. So he imagines Bond to be the same way, fatalistic, yes. pessimistic, nihilistic, and says, how sophisticated, how much more sophisticated than these people like Sutpen who believe in a dream or people like Henry who believe in something like honor or love or whatever the heck it was that drove Henry to kill Bond, which they're still speculating over. But I think he sees that as kind of a fundamental difference. Uh, Bond is sophisticated not just because he's from a cosmopolitan city and he speaks French and he has a, you know, kind of mistress wife and a child and all these things, and he has fancy clothes. Like, Jason just loves imagining, like, Henry walking into Bond's room and Bond's wearing, like, a floral kimono nightgown dressing gown thing and Henry's like what is that that looks like a woman would wear it but on him it's kind of cool you know like just that the barrier goes deeper than that it's like a philosophical barrier in the way they see the world that Bond is just sort of given up in the way that Jason Compson is, is given up on trying to change his destiny and Henry has still got this sense of like I must strive for something. Yeah. And so there's this element, like you're saying, uh, of, um, I guess, kind of um, foils. You know, the, these two characters are, are foils for one another. And Charles's confidence is actually built in, like what he was saying, kind of a, a nihilism, a sense of like, well, I know it's not going to amount to anything. Um, and, and Henry is, is, hopeful that it will amount to something, whether that be friendship, whether that be, um, you know, their education, whether that be their generation. And of course, their generation is the generation that goes to fight the war. Now, the Civil War is fought by all generations old enough to basically shoot a gun. But in terms of the, the generation that was decimated the most by it, probably Charles, for, you know, from Charles's age to, to Henry's age, um, that, that 10 year span a lot of people in that age range are, are you know, losing their lives in the Civil War. And yet, here they are. I think they go to college in 1859. I th I'm almost positive that's right. And so, here they go off to college. And the war is only two years away from breaking out. And, and they're just going through college, you know. No, no, no big deal. Not, not worried about it. And then, then the war breaks out. And then they join. And, and they join um, the Mississippi Grays. And so um, they join a regiment. And, and Sutpen, Thomas Sutpen is not in that regiment. He's in a different one with the other people from Jefferson, like General Compson. And so they, they're obviously fighting on the Confederacy side. But they're not actually together with... Uh, you know, Henry is not together with his father during the war. And so uh, that's of note to think about, um, you know, a, as it builds to the climax, um, which is, is led on pretty early in the novel that Henry kills Charles Bond. He shoots him. 
in front of Sutpen's Hundred. And so there's this element of, um, it's a murder mystery. You know, the reading this whole novel is, is trying to find out who killed, well, not who, not who killed Charles Bond. We know that. Why did Henry kill Charles Bond? And, and I think that that's one element of reading this novel among many, but it actually does connect to what I was talking about with, with Rosa Coldfield and with Thomas Sutpen. This novel is about portraiture. And so, um, just like Whitney was saying, Jason Compson, Quentin's father, really likes the portrait he has painted of, of Charles Bond. Now, does Quentin like that portrait as much? What do you think, Whitney? Um, I, I think not just because Quentin, I, I feel that Quentin relates very much with Henry. And we, we discover that as we hear Quentin talking with Shreve. Um, there are certain moments when Quentin and Shreve are trying to imagine what happened when they imagine themselves kind of walking alongside or riding horses alongside Henry and, and Bond. And, it's made pretty clear that Quentin relates with Henry and is kind of walking alongside Henry in those scenes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that because Quentin, as we, we know from other books like the sound and the fury, Quentin also has value for things like honor and, you know, his family's honor, his sister's honor. It makes a lot of sense that he could read that into Henry, um, and then if he does, I mean, I think maybe he does to some extent buy into his father's portrait of Bond, but it doesn't mean he likes it, which I think is what you asked me. Does he, does he like the portrait? I think right. he, several times, so Shreve and Bond are kind of associated with each other, and, and then they're both associated with Jason, Quentin's father, and Quentin will say, you sound just like my father, he sounds just like my father yeah. to Shreve, but I think that Quentin's got a fundamental problem with the, the kind of nihilism and refusal to believe in, in anything that all three of them are espousing. Yeah. And so, you know, as you read Absalom, Absalom, or if you've already read it and you're reading it again, I, you know, I've read it, I think I've read it three times now. And still on the third read, Charles Bond is, is just, he's kind of a ghost. He's kind of, he doesn't feel corporeal. Um, he does not feel fully alive to me. And part of it is because early on in the novel, you know, he's going to die. And so, you know, just like any kind of movie or, or book that starts with someone dying, it's like, well, what, you know, you watch that movie, you read that book to, to understand why that person died. But typically you get a resolution. Like you understand, okay, I understand why that person died. I don't know if it's conclusive why Charles Bond died. I think that one of the things that we're going to talk about is the metaphor of Henry and Charles that I'm just carrying because I, I'm, I like big, you know, conceit metaphors. But in terms of just a satisfying resolution, Whitney, did you feel, did you feel like by the end of reading it this time around, you understood it. Like, yeah, I think I see why Charles Bond had to die. Well, 
I'll put it this way. I think you go through the same process that Quentin is going through. And so Jason Compson's telling Quentin this whole theoretical story of why Henry might have killed um, Bond. And it has to, so Jason's version of it has to do with the fact that Bond has married this like one eighth black woman in New Orleans and had a son and he won't just renounce them and kind of choose Judith. And so Jason is just speculating that Henry must have just found that to be so insulting. I think he says Henry would have seen it as Bond trying to add Judith to his harem of women. And that's just very insulting. And so therefore for like the honor of himself and his family, but because he loved Bond, he gave Bond four years to think about it in like a probation period. And then he could renounce his original family at the end. And then when Bond refuses to do it, that he shoots him. But then Jason kind of stops the story and he's like, that doesn't make sense. It's not enough. Like, why don't I feel convinced by this? Something's mm-hmm. missing. I think we feel that way too. Yeah. Um, like there's some kind of missing piece or the the motive or the time frame of all four years passing or something that doesn't work out. And then later on, the story that Shreve and Quentin come up with is more convincing somehow because it's more extreme and the motive is more obvious because the situation that they contend is is the truth is is kind of a more it's a more extreme motive so I, I guess but as I'm reading it yeah I'm I'm like yeah it's more satisfying version of the story somehow to read about why Quentin and Shreve think that Henry killed Bond there is I read I read some speculation I think in, in the Clint Brooks article that at the um, end of the story, when Henry takes Rosa back out to Seven Hundred and they go in the house, um, Henry—I mean, not Henry, Quentin. See, I'm conflating them in my mind. Quentin goes upstairs and sees Henry, and there's speculation. I think it's possible that Henry told they had a conversation, and Henry told him this revelation so that Henry, basically, Henry told. Quentin enough of the truth that he and Shreve are like on solid ground in, mm. in their speculations, but we don't, we don't know that for sure. So, and we'll get to that, uh, because obviously that's the, I mean, there's so many climaxes of this novel, but that's one of them is, is the, the Eureka moment where they're already, uh, you know, thinking of themselves as Henry and Charles riding in tandem on their horses and then, you know, they get to Sutpen's 100, and, and Charles basically calls Henry's bluff, and he's like, listen, I don't think you, you know what you're doing siding with me. Because there's been this, this um, uh, repudiation of the family where Thomas Sutpen's trying to tell Henry, uh, like what he was saying, maybe it was what Jason Compson speculated, that he was already married, and he already had a kid, and the kid was 116th black because the mother was... Um, was one eighth or an octoroon, um, yeah, African American, and so, um, so so that's one speculation. But obviously, it's not the it's not the ultimate speculation. And and um, Whitney mentioned one thing about Judith and and how um, you know, well, maybe it would be that Henry would be protecting his sister's honor because he wouldn't want her to become just like Whitney was saying. A, a, another another member of the harem and it says the junior member and I bring that up because I wanted to say um, as they are 
imagining themselves Henry and and Charles, Quentin and, and, and Shreve, in fact, I think this is Shreve speaking, he says, um, if I had a brother, I wouldn't want him to be a younger brother, and he, ah, and the youth, no, I would want him to be older than me, and he, no son of a landed father wants an older brother, and the youth, yes, I do. And it, I'm going to skip ahead. It says, yes, and I would want him to be just like you. And and so there's this element of, of primogenitor, of who's the oldest child here. Now, um, Judith is older than Henry, but Henry's the oldest son. And, of course, property law would, would t- you know, tend toward Henry in that case in the 1860s. In, in Mississippi, but this idea of wanting an older brother, do you think, Whitney, that Henry gets his wish? Is, is Charles Bond really, spoiler alert, his older brother? I don't know if we can make firm assertions in, with this book about what is definitely true or not. We're just not really allowed to, but it makes for a compelling story. It makes for a convincing story, the way it's narrated and plays out. And I think the big like gap in the logic of the story is um, how did Bond happen to come back into their lives? Like, was it just by design or was it on accident? So, like, that's really what a lot of the book that's kind of between Quentin and Shreve is spent hashing out, like, because it begs the question, right? Like, if Bond just happened to show up at the University of Mississippi and and become good friends with Henry, and then he just happened to turn out to be his brother, that seems like really heavy-handed fate. So to get around that, instead, they speculate that all along, Charles Bond's mother was dissatisfied with being cast aside. Yeah. And she waited and with the help of her lawyer, you know, found Thomas Upin, made a calculated decision about how to kind of weasel in to his life and get something for herself and her son from mm-hmm. all this wealth. And so I think it is speculation, especially that part of speculation, because I, I seriously doubt even if Henry gave Quentin some inside info like Charles Bond was really my brother. I doubt he went into this whole like backstory about how Mm-mm. Bond ended up at, you know, the university. But it just it does create an interesting tension, I think, between fate and calculating design. And I think that that connects back to how Sutton's so worried about like what did I make a big mistake? Like he wants to believe that he's in control. And he made a mistake, but maybe he can rectify the mistake, and there's not some sort of destiny out to get him. But if Charles Bond just kind of wandered into their life and and is is the missing son, that's like destiny's out to get the Sutton family. You know yes. what I mean? Like they, they're yes. cursed. But if it was designed all along, then that means Sutton really did make a big mistake, which was thinking mm-hmm. he could buy off his first wife and, and his son instead of having to acknowledge them or, or grapple with them in the future. And it makes sense that they would be in New Orleans of all places in the South because New Orleans has such a French 
um, you know, a, a French history, and, um, and and they would have come from Haiti, so um, which is a French colony. So this idea of New Orleans to Oxford, Mississippi, well, all all Charles had to do was wait to go to college until Henry did. But did Charles know he was going to college to be roommates with Henry Sutpen? I, I don't think he did, but either his mother or the lawyer or both knew that. And, and, and that's, I think, when you think about um, doing background research on your opponent or on your, you know, spurned lover or whatever it is, it's almost like th- there's this kind of private detective element going on, which, by the way, Thomas Sutpen gives as good as he gets. He sends a private detective to, to determine if Charles Bond is, in fact, who he thinks he is. Because when he shows up the first time, Thomas Sutpen looks at Charles Bond, and I think he just has this idea of, you look just like me. <laughs> I think there's this element of he knows exactly who he is the first time he sees him. And there's a at least one moment where someone mentions, like, he might have named him Charles Bond, like he refused to give him his name, so he made up a name for him. So in that case, if he heard that name, obviously it would it would be like, oh, True. no, True. that name. <laughs> well, and we talked about the name with, with the Thomas Upton episode, but let's talk about a, a little bit more. Charles Bond, you know, Bond could, could mean good. Uh, it could also mean like Bonnie, like beautiful. Um this idea of Charles, you know, that there's just something about Charles Bond. He just sounds, oh, I'm Charles Bond, and I'm here to tell you about my campaign for the uh, Mississippi Third or whatever. Like, he just sounds, he sounds kind of timeless, right? His name doesn't sound old-fashioned. It doesn't really sound... um that southern, in a way, it, in a way, it just it sounds uh, like a combination of it fits that place in time, the way that like a name like Jedediah Bricklebackle would, or something like that. Um, it, but 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 it doesn't sound old fashioned that way, and it and it doesn't feel limited. Like I could see someone being named Charles Bond now, um, but of course, as we'll we'll talk about his grandson or great-grandson, I think it's a grandson, is named Jim Bond. So his name changes from Bond to Bond. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, Henry, on the other hand, Henry Sutpen, you know, we talked about it with Thomas Sutpen, that that's, that's, that's another kingly name. So there, there are these king names and and clearly that's what Thomas Sutpen is trying to do. He's trying to he's trying to establish a dynasty of kings for Jefferson, Mississippi, for the South, for the world. Um, and and in some ways Charles is kind of kingly in, in Henry's eyes, so much so that Henry decides, You have got to be my brother. Now I don't mean that you've got to be my blood brother. I mean he wants him to be his brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't he talk talk to us about Judith and how she figures into Charles and Henry's friendship and bro- romance, et cetera? Yeah, I think um, they speculate that Henry must have seduced Judith on Bond's behalf, essentially, because yeah. there's all this kind of 
wondering about how did Judith and Charles fall in love enough that it was plausible that they wanted to get married and were going to be so stubborn about getting married, you know, and, and in the face of Judith's father saying no and Henry being opposed. And it says, well, maybe Henry was the one who won over Judith to bond, right? Maybe Henry's writing these letters home to Judith and saying, this this man's the most extraordinary man I've ever met, you know, just really talking him up. And so Judith is just primed when she meets him to find him, as you would be. I mean, you're you're this living this isolated place, and you hardly know any young men, and then this kind of cosmopolitan young man comes up who your brother adores and has been talking up, and he, she's sort of primed to fall in love with him. Um, and also Ellen... Seppin, it seems to fall in love with him too, I would yeah. say. Um, Very rare when the mom and the daughter both just think he's the cat's pajamas. And, you know, I, it's funny because Jason says, try and imagine Judith and Charles Bond walking around together and falling in love. It's impossible. You can't do it. Just try. You, all, you, all you'll see is ghosts or something like that. Um, and I do think it is really hard to imagine them together. And it's partly because the, the the narrative keeps reminding us they were hardly ever together at all. So they barely knew each other and they didn't even really write letters to each other. It was just kind of, there was no substance to the relationship. Um, but then at the same time, Jason keeps insisting, no, he, he really loved her. He really loved her. And it's like, how do you know? And his evidence is this one letter that he sent to Judith that was like, we've waited long enough, let's get married. And then has like a whole bunch of kind of abstract information about what it's like to be at war. I don't, maybe because he's opening his heart up in this way that feels very Jason Sutpin-ish. Is that why he feels like he loves, he's like, he can be himself with Judith. He's real with her. But I do think we do get some evidence that Judith loves Bond to some degree in how, at least in the way the story is presented to us, in how Judith treats Bond's body, Bond's mm-hmm. son yes. with the other woman. Um, yes. She's extremely magnanimous yeah. toward that son, and and she actually dies nursing him when he gets yellow fever. She's yeah. very selfless about it. So there's a suggestion that she has an undemonstrative love for for Charles, but it's it's deep rooted. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's so much to say about. Judith, who who really is, I mean, if you want to say the the real lost character, it's it's really Judith. I mean, she, she is the she's the deep, most deeply buried character in this novel because we get a lot of discussion about Charles and and Henry. Obviously, a lot about Sutpen, Thomas Sutpen, like we talked about last episode, and and Rosa talks a lot about Ellen, her sister, and her father Goodhue, and obviously Sutpen and his family. Um, but in terms of you know, Charles wanting to become part of the family, Whitney kind of hit the nail on the head, like, well, we waited long enough. Now, that's about as good as Sam's proposal to Diane. Oh, what the heck? Will you marry me? I mean, over the phone. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, if you're watching season three of Cheers for the first time, or season, I think it's season two. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um but in terms of this idea of Judith marrying Bond, I think Henry wants it so badly because he wants to be Charles Bond. 
And the, the next best thing to being Charles Bond is being Charles Bond's brother and being Charles Bond's children's uncle. And, 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 and I think that there's an element of Henry just is young enough to not feel fully established as a person. And this is how many people, you know, Whitney and I both teach teenagers, so we're, we're on teenagers all the time. Even when we were teenagers, I don't think we knew who we were but I think we had a, a vision for who we wanted to be. And sometimes that's through people like celebrities. Sometimes that's through family members. Sometimes that's through people like, dare I say, professors. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, when you think about who influences you to become the person you are, it's, it's a long list. And Henry does not have that long list. He has his dad and he has, um, he has Charles Bond. And by the way, Henry's grandfather, Goodhue Coldfield, is nailing himself shut in the attic and f- refusing to, to fight on religious grounds, which, you know, I, I respect that. And I, you know, I think that that's an admirable position, but he does it in such a, a cold feel way. He does it in such a, 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 a defiant way. And so, you know, here is, here is Henry who doesn't even know his, his grandparents on, on Sutpen's side. And, and so he's really looking to know who he is. And Charles Bond is just, he just has this um, natural charm to him. And I think part of it is because of how wealthy he is. And he seems like a prince. He seems like he's come from the lap of luxury in New Orleans, although from a single mother. I mean, Henry's not doing the math, but but we are. And so um, he comes, you know, to to, Sutpen, I mean, to to Charles Bond and and he really he, he loves him. I mean, it says he loves him. And now you know some people will try and read into that that there's some sort of homoerotic thing going on there. And I, I don't think that that's the case because he wants his sister to marry him. And and I think he just wants him to be a part of him. You know, in terms of he wants part of Charles Bond's identity to just be in him for good. And, and, and he does get his wish, um, but, but at the expense of Judith getting her wish, which was to be married, to be a bride, to be a mother, well, she doesn't get those things, and, and Rosa Coldfield calls her, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's like widow, orphan, you know, spinster, one of these like Rosa Coldfield combinations of things. And, and Judith, poor Judith, is is just she's she's made a widow before she's even a bride, and that that's that's how Rosa call, uh, Rosa describes it. And so we'll talk about that in just a second. But before we get to the death scene, uh, we got to talk about Thomas Sutpen's attempt to get Henry to back off. He says, "Well, we don't know exactly." <laughs> maybe he says it's the, the Octoroon mistress with the child. Now, is Charles Bond married already, or does he just have a mistress with a child? We don't know one way or the other. But we know he has a child, and we know the mistress is an Octoroon, one-eighth black, which, you know, to, to us in the 20th century, or 21st century, uh, you know, we, we have lineages from all different ways and, and means in America now, and one-eighth of anything doesn't seem that significant. But in, in the South, in the antebellum period, any mixing of blood was seen as too much. And so 
there's this element of, well, he got with a woman that was part black, so maybe that's the reason that Sutpin is trying to say he's not good enough for our family. But like like what he was saying, Quentin and, and Shreve r- really kind of break through that. That doesn't hold enough water. Well, here's the next reason. Because he's your brother, and it would be incest. That's yeah. a big reason. Now, Whitney, talk to us about that. Is that is that enough? Well, is that a breaking point? Do you think that explains why Henry repudiates? Okay, sorry. We someone came to our door, so we had a brief interruption. Um, but Adam. <laughs> I was trying to make the Anthony Pantano, like... (laughs) I thought you were making a duck sound. Speaking of Beatrice, I haven't seen her while we've been doing this podcast. That's our cat, for those of you that don't know. Okay, so you were asking, is uh, the revelation that Charles and Judith are siblings enough to make Henry want to shoot Charles for wanting to marry Judith? Um, I'm going to say yes. Um, I think that it's important for Quentin. I'm, I'm going to say two things about this. One is that it's important for Quentin that this whole like incest concept comes into play, or it makes a lot of sense because Quentin has also had a um, traumatic experience connected with incest in his own family, and so or the concept of incest or something and. Quentin himself, we know from the Sound of the Fury, thinks of incest as being this thing that would consign you to hell. It's like this this sin that would damn you and you can't come back from it. So I think that for Quentin, who's, you know, the one kind of speculating and talking, it's, it's a huge deal. And the thought, I think it's not just the thought that Charles might kind of stumble into incest with Judith. It's a thought that Charles might barrel eyes wide open into incest with Judith and do that to Judith and dishonor his family and do this heinous thing. Because there's this moment on page 237 where Shreve says um, that what upsets Henry so much um, is that what Sutpen said to Henry in that like private meeting was not just he is your brother, but... He has known all the time that he is yours and your sister's brother. So that's a huge difference, right? Like the idea that Bond was just like stumbling into friendship with Henry and then stumbling into engagement with Judith. And then, you know, they have to be kept apart because they're brother and sister, but Bond's still fundamentally a decent person. Yeah. And then this other concept, which is that Bond is this, like, completely ruthless, conniving person who is completely taking advantage of Henry and Judith. That would really make Henry want to kill Bond because it's like his trust has been um, betrayed in addition to just this the horrible thought of incest, you know? Because if Bond didn't know they were siblings, presumably if Henry were like, hey, Charles, uh, you know you and Judith are brother and sister, then Charles would recoil in horror from the engagement and leave. But if he knew the whole time and he was still trying to go through with it, it's like, then you have to shoot him. You know, I think so. That's an important distinction. But, um, but it, you know, but then immediately after that, 
Shreve says, but he didn't know. Bond didn't know. Like as if that were just something trying to poison Henry. And so there's still a lot of confusion in in the way these ideas are tossed around and tossed back and forth. There's a lot of confusion about what really happened. And, you know, as we kind of ping pong between the death of Charles Bond and backward and death and backward and death and backward, that's what the, the phenomenon is of reading this book. It's like we know he's going to die very early on, and we keep going into the past to try and find the reason. Well, we find out <laughs> through speculation, and you know, I use that word reenactment very specifically because people still do Civil War reenactments now. And there's this element of Shreve and Quentin are reenacting not just some battle in the Civil War that they don't, you know, that they think they know about. They're trying to embody Charles Bond and Henry Sutpen. And so as they come to this idea of, well, what if Sut- Thomas Sutpen gets Henry a message late in the war that says, you can't let Charles marry Judith, even if I die. Here's why not. And then, you know, they add that caveat that not only is Charles Bond the father of someone who is a a 16th, 116th black, uh, but Charles Bond himself is part black because the reason Thomas Sutpen left his wife in Haiti in the first place, who's Charles Bond's mother, was that he found out she had some black... um, you know, uh, ancestry. And, and so, um, so that's said pretty late in the novel and, and yet again, speculation, not definitively true. And yet that is, that, that's the one thing that, that Shreve and Quentin are just convinced that this, now this makes sense. Yeah, because they have this whole section where Henry is trying to convince himself that incest is not that big of a deal. And that's really where the whole like significance of Charles's name, where he's like Charles the Good and Bonnie Prince Charlie, um, feels the most relevant to me, is Henry is telling himself, kings have done it, dukes have done it, yes. the Duke of Lorraine did it, like fancy people kind of have carte blanche to be incestuous because, hey, who's good enough for them but their own family members, right? True. And so <laughs> they imagine, I mean, to me, you know, I I think incest obviously is enough of a reason to flip your lid, but they've imagined Hen- uh, Henry finding a way to live with the incest, especially if Charles didn't really, like, design it from the very beginning that it was going to be incestuous. But then he's like, but even if he did, maybe Charles is like so much more sophisticated than I am, like a a king or a duke would be, that he just has like a different perspective on incest. Then they have this even further revelation, which is like, but he's part black. And it's like, that's the bridge too far. That's the, you know, the thing that Henry genuinely can't brook is this concept that, his sister is going to marry someone who has some black ancestry. And as I say, you know, it's, it, I said it last episode with Thomas Sutton, and it's obviously true with this episode as well. The governing zeitgeist mindset philosophy of Antebellum South is white people are better than black people. That's just, I think, that, 
I think everybody understands that. That's one of the main reasons that the Civil War was fought. It was, is this mindset true or not? Well, the Confederacy, as one of its reasons to fight the Civil War, said, yes, it is. And the Union said, no, it's not. Now, does that mean that the Union practiced what they preached? Not all the time, but then again, they didn't have slavery to, you know, to the extent that the, the, the Confederacy did. And so there's this element of, of the racism that, you know, is obviously on display in slavery in the antebellum South that's still on display at the time of the telling of this story in 1910. And, and obviously in 2020, um, you know, Black Lives Matter as a movement is still a movement because it's not common knowledge. It's not, I, I would say right now, if you had to say what's the the zeitgeist of the age, I would say wokeism. I would say can you know can you be woke enough to to belong? Um, and anybody that isn't woke enough doesn't belong. Feels like an outsider. Feels like they they don't fit with the spirit of the times. And so um, you know Charles Bond doesn't fit with the spirit of the times in in the antebellum South. He's actually fighting the Civil War to keep the people like his mother's you know, parents or grandparents from being equal with his father's parents and grandparents, which, by the way, we talked about Thomas Thomas Sutton's parents. His dad was, like, in in jail in England before he came to America. Like, they they weren't royalty. They were the farthest thing from royalty. But that is, you know, that's at the crux of this novel being a Civil War novel is it's really, it's not about the battles of the Civil War on the battlefields. It's more about the battles in the mind of the soldiers and the, 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 the two competing nations of the Union versus the Confederacy. And it's interesting that it just seems like Charles Bond could, could obviously can pass as white man right, right. completely. Um, and Henry even, even after Henry has a, you know, a bad reaction to the, the idea that um, Charles has some African ancestry, he still says, but you're my brother, you're my brother. Mm-hmm. Like, he tries to kind of reconcile it to himself. And they imagine Charles pushing the the kind of, like, whatever, harsh truth, I guess, in his yeah. face and saying, no, I'm not your brother. I'm the N-word that's going to sleep with your sister unless you stop me, Henry. So it's like Charles has this kind of a death wish yes. and a refusal to try to pass a refusal to try to just like kind of accommodate and go along. And then you see that intensified very much in his son. So mm-hmm. Charles's son also can pass as being white and Judith tries to convince him to do that. Says, why don't you just move far away from here? Just live as a completely white man and just be free. And he instead goes the completely opposite direction. He finds the woman with the blackest skin he can find to marry and have a child with. And so the you have, you know, all of these kind of people who have the opportunity to just kind of assimilate and play by the rules of the culture that they're living in and not um, try to insist on their blackness. And they just, they do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I brought this up to Whitney before we started the podcast today to discuss just as I've discussed Rosa as the uh, postbellum South, you know, the, the Reconstruction South, and Thomas Sutpen as the antebellum South, I think 
that you could read this novel. Obviously, you read it for the characters, you read it for the story, you read it for the language, you read it for the design. I think it's got a really interesting design, you know, in terms of the sequence of how it all works. Um, you read it if you like Quentin Thompson from The Sound of the Fury. Um, you read it because it's, you know, about the Civil War. It's, there, there are a lot of reasons to read it, and I, I mentioned one of them early in the in the this episode is it's a it's a murder mystery. It's a why did this person get murdered, and I think we've we've covered a lot of that, but one of the things that has dawned on me about Charles Bond and and Henry Sutpen is I think Charles Bond represents the Civil War. And the Civil War shows up at Thomas Sutpen's doorstep, just like the Civil War shows up at at the Antebellum South, and it's just, you know, it's game on. There's no, you know, it's, it's almost like it just happens. And I know that it built up for a long time, but... Um, it's interesting that, that Thomas Sutpen uh, arrived in Yaknapatawpha County, Jefferson, uh, Mississippi, 28 years before the beginning of the Civil War. And Charles Bond is 28 years old when he arrives and, you know, when, when, when he meets Henry and gets to know the Sutpens. And so I think that's not a coincidence. Um, but I think that that sense of, you know, Charles Bond is representing something bigger than himself. Well, I think he's representing the Civil War, and I say that because from the surface, he seems appealing, and he seems he seems unique, and he, he seems um, like he's got this um, th- 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 this this importance, um, and, and that's why I think you know the people in the Confederacy engaged in the Civil War because they they thought it would be important. They thought. Okay, this is gonna, you know, this is gonna make or break our way of life, and so Henry, as the as the Confederacy, he's the child of the antebellum South, Thomas Sutpen. That makes sense, but it takes two to tango, and if the Union hadn't fought, the Confederacy would not have existed. Okay, it would have just been the antebellum South, and so there's an element of Henry is separate from Sutpen, Thomas Sutpen. And, and he's he's linked in a different way to Charles Bond. Um, obviously, you would never have the Civil War if you didn't have the antebellum South. So that makes sense. But I think there's an element where either the Civil War is going to kill the Confederacy and, and the Union will prevail and, and America will be won, or the Confederacy will kill the Civil War and either win the Civil War and stay a separate country or what actually happened in history, which is because the Confederacy continued to fight and wage the war, it, it ended, and, and, and yet it didn't end. The Civil War battles stopped, but the repercussions of it are still going on even until 2020, and that's why I think this novel is so powerful, is it does have a foot in the constant present of America because race relations in America are always going to be a, a, a topic and, and something that people think about and something that people struggle to understand, um, but something that I think people want to understand. I think that that's part of where people are right now in 2020 as this zeitgeist is, is kind of gearing up with, with, like I call, wokeism. It's an effort to try and understand the other. Now, whether that's I'm, you know, a white man trying to understand a black man or whether that's a black man trying to understand a white man. I think there's an element of we are trying to learn more now, which is a good thing. But I think this novel is also about the past 
And it's about learning from the past so you don't make the mistakes in the present that were made in the past. And some of the mistakes making, made now have been made in the past many times and will continue to be made in the future. But I think that this, this concept of the two of them being together and being in the war together, obviously they're not literally the war because they're fighters in the war. But Charles Bond is a very different figure from Henry and I think that's partly why Henry kills him. I think he couldn't kill someone that was that much like him. And that's why the Civil War, to me, the Confederacy didn't want to fight the war. Like It's been said on the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns that the, the Union fought the Civil War with one arm behind its back. Well, if the Confederacy had fought it with one arm behind its back, it might have lasted 10 more years. And it would have affected America very differently. But there was this sense of just like Henry wants to prove, no, it's I will, I will believe, I will believe. He wants to believe there's there's goodness in Charles Bond and that, that their relationship is not tainted by his father's sins, but that it can be culminated in him becoming his brother-in-law through marriage to Judith. There's just this element of Henry just just fights. To, to keep it alive. And I think that the Confederacy did fight to keep the, the Civil War alive longer than it needed to. They could have quit after Gettysburg, but they didn't. And so there's this element of Henry stays alive even though he kills Bond and, and he becomes a fugitive. And so it, we find out that he's been there for four years at the end in you know, 1909 when Quentin goes out there. And, of course, four years, same length as the Civil War. And so um, this concept you know, of, of them embodying um, the war and one of its participants, what do you, what do you think about that, Whitney? I, I think it's, it's so complicated. I, I maybe need to think it through more because it's kind of a new concept mm-hmm. for me. But... It did make me think of this one um, description, which I'm taking to be a metaphor for the Civil War that's early on in the book. Um, It's on page seven. um, It's discussing how Quentin carries around this story about Sutpen as part of his heritage as being just a young man from Jefferson. And it says... He was a barracks filled with stubborn, back-looking ghosts, still recovering, even 43 years afterwards, from the fever which had cured the disease. And I'm going to read a little more of that quote, but I just wanted to talk about what is there, first of all. Um, I mean, pretty clear from that that this is saying that he's so haunted by the Civil War. The Civil War is called the fever which had cured the disease. Um, It says... Waking from the fever without even knowing that it had been the fever itself which they had fought against and not sickness. So it was saying it's saying that people in the South during the Civil War and people in the aftermath too, as they look back on events, they didn't really understand what they were fighting against. Um, they thought they were fighting against opposition from the North or like people trying to control them from outside or, you know, disrupt their way of life or dishonor them. They thought that they were fighting against all these things, which I think that parallels pretty well with what Henry thinks he's fighting against. I guess his family being dishonored and, you know, things spinning out of control. 
But then it says, they're looking with stubborn recalcitrance backwards beyond the fever and into the disease with actual regret. Weak from the fever, yet free of the disease, and not even aware that the freedom was that of impotence. I love this section because it's so interesting to me, but it's basically saying that the Civil War was a fever that actually, when it broke, it freed the South of a disease they didn't even know they had. And the South has spent 43 years looking backward at the fever and saying, I sure miss that I sure miss that fever. I sure miss that disease. Gosh, I miss being sick and not realizing that something about the war healed them and that gave them freedom. And the freedom is that of impotence. And I think this whole book is largely about how men are not in control of their circumstances. They're not gods. They're not myths. They're frail and vulnerable and subject to changes. And that the Civil War taught a lot of truly, truly gallant, proud, arrogant men, and maybe women too, that they weren't in control and they weren't gods, and that there's a freedom in impotence. There's a freedom in saying, I can't own another human being. You know, there's a freedom in saying, I can't control destiny. Um, there's a freedom in saying, sometimes I have to submit, and sometimes I have to lose. Sometimes I can't win them all, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that just seems to me a little bit to connect to your metaphor, just this mm-hmm. sense that um, Henry's trying to exert control over the situation and concert, exert control over all the forces of what he would consider, you know, miscegenation and confusion and, and kind of loss of power and honor. Um, and Charles Bond really represents the, the future direction that things are going to take, you know, this greater... South has got to be more integrated with the wider world. The South has got to be change its whole attitude on race. Um, he just represents this great challenge to the South. Yeah, and I think that that's just it, is that even though the Civil War can die, the struggle that the Civil War was is still, it's still alive. And, you know, and I think that that's just it, is that the, the Confederacy... It certainly doesn't feel like the South is a Confederacy anymore, but but I think at the time of the novel, 1909-1910, it did feel like the South was looked at as this, you know, loser um, of, of a war, and, and it wasn't fully integrated back into the country. And, and even now, I think it's, we're, we're still, there's still vestiges of people don't look at the South like it, it belongs in the Union. And, and just because they seceded. I mean, you know, they chose to be a separate country. And it really does feel like a separate country to live in the South. If, you, if you've lived here, you probably agree. Um, it's just its own place, own way of life, own climate. Um, I really think the climate has a lot to do with it. When it's 100 degrees, five months a year, you cannot make the same decisions that you would make if you lived in a more temperate climate. And, and just like if you lived in Maine or Alaska or North Dakota or these places that are so cold so long, you know, people from the South can't imagine what it's like to be afraid to freeze to death for five months. And so, you know, part of it is just learning how to live in America, and, and it's such a big place. But really, Charles and Henry, Henry, I think, I think he kills Charles because Charles wants to die. And I think there's this element of Charles has tried to come to the door the same way Thomas Sutton went to the front door of the plantation owner in the Tidewater, Virginia area and said, 
I have a message and the, the slave, you know, house slave is like, you got to go to the back little boy. And, and I think that Charles Bond is the dream that, that Thomas Upton had of someone coming to his front door and he didn't have to send him to the back door. He could have let him in and, and brought him in and said, you can be one of us, but he was already one of them because he was his son. And so, um, there's a great article by Dirk Kuk Jr. Uh, that, that is called Sutton's Design, and it, and it talks all about this theory that, that it was a lose-lose situation because Sutton needed someone to come to the door that wasn't related to him, and yet he wanted a dynasty. And, and he wanted his sons and his grandsons to be um, magnanimous and open the door to the, the waifs and the, you know, the, the, the little boys that, that come with a little message you know, um, that they, they shouldn't be relegated to the back door. And, and so, you know, Charles Bond does die, but in some ways this novel is all about Charles Bond. You know, like I said, um, Jason Compson calls him, he says that he's the one who interests me. And I think there is an element of this story about Thomas Sutton is not a story without Charles Bond, because it's really about the murder of Charles Bond by Henry Sutpen. And of course the title Absalom Absalom, as we'll talk about in a future episode about the title specifically is a reference to one brother killing another. And the, and the father's response is Absalom, Absalom. Um, and so, you know, spoiler alert, that's what the, the, uh, you know, episode after next is going to be. But, um, but we will be talking next episode about Shreve and Quentin um, because, you know, we're going to bring it to the present of the novel and talk about them and why they're telling this story to one another and, and um, just about Quentin and his connection to The Sound of Fury. And uh, there's just so much to talk about about them, but I think they really do, they see these guys as college guys. Well, they're, you know, they're in college as well. And so there's something about this novel that it's, it's about people in their college years. And so, you know, when Ian and I both, well, she read it when she was in college, I read it shortly after college, but I think it's a novel worth reading as a college student or, you know, someone close to college age, but it's also a novel worth reading as a parent. It's a novel worth reading as a child of a parent, um, you know, and, and so that the, there are all these different reasons to read this, but, you know, to get all the answers about Charles Bond, well, you just can't get them. And um, I think Sutton did that intentionally because he wanted there's he wanted these characters to seem larger than life, and if they seem too compact and too small, just like Jason Compson says, there were simpler times, and so people were allowed to be bigger. And that's how it feels with Charles Bond and Henry. And sure enough, Henry at the end, you know, he's he's lying on the bed, and and here's this this interaction with Quentin where it's. It, it's like the shortest sentences in the whole novel. Are you, and you are Henry Sutton and you have been here four years and you came home to die. Yes. To die. Yes. To die. And you have been here four years and you are Henry Sutton. So there's this almost palindrome element to that conversation. It's on page 298 and here's Henry you know, at the end of his life, getting to be the boy that, that Charles didn't get to be, you know, getting readmitted to the house, not as a son and an heir, but as like a much, something worse than a prodigal, you know, as a fugitive, right? I mean, as someone who needs safety. And sure enough, at the end, uh, Sutton's 100 does provide like a sanctuary and a safety to Henry. 
Um, and as, and that's why I say he does remind me of the Confederacy because there's this element of within these great homes, no matter how haunted they are, no matter how derelict and awful they are on the inside, there's this element of th- there was a nation here once, you know, that, that fought for this land. And they didn't win, but that doesn't mean they didn't leave the lasting mark. And And I think that that's, you know... The question of who won the Civil War sounds easy, but <laughs> it's as complicated a question as this novel. And, and I think that's what this novel is doing. It's, it's showing us these people and these events that we think we can understand or we think we can guess how, they, how they've unfolded. Well, there's 10 different ways, you know, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. There's, there's, there's so many different ways of explaining it, and no one way is perfectly right, but there's some truth in all of them. And I think part of this attempt at understanding Charles Bond and Henry through Quentin and Jason and Shreve and even Rosa Coldfield is this element of trying to, to understand history. And I think, you know, it's impossible to perfect history, but it is possible to engage with it and, and to use your life to see the past in order to understand the present. Do you want me to say anything yes, else? <laughs> um, I, the final thing I'll just throw in is I read part of this work by C. Van Woodward called The Irony of Southern History. And it was written in the late 60s. Um, but essentially it's saying that America as a whole has never had to undergo the experience of military defeat, occupation, and reconstruction in a way that pretty much every other culture and society has had to do that, right? And they say that England's the closest exception, you know, in terms of, like, being protected from being occupied by enemy forces and being humbled and shamed, really, and um, saying that America has a, a real mythos of success and optimism and virtue, but the South is exempt from that. Because the South, specifically as a region, has had to undergo military defeat, occupation, and reconstruction from an outside power while still finding a way to remain a part of that power. Um, I thought that was a pretty fascinating concept, and it's it's fascinating to think about that in terms of Henry, too. He keeps on surviving, but the the terms in which he survived, you know, he's sort of of hunted and, and furtive and skulking back to his home place in shame and going up in flames. So Yeah. And I you know, I mentioned New Orleans about Charles Bond and, and that it's no it's no accident that's where he's from, but you know, the Battle of New Orleans is one of the most famous battles of, of the War of eighteen twelve and, and of course the win you know, the, the general that's leading them to victory is Andrew Jackson. And so there's this element of New Orleans has this um you know, that's the last place there was a battle in America until the Civil War, I'm pretty sure. I know Mexican-American War, you, you know, is happening in, in Texas, which wasn't officially a part of America yet. But, but really, that concept of war, um, when it is mythologized too much, becomes too much of an enticement, and it suckers people in. And, 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 and I don't mean that in a... In a, in a pejorative way what I mean is people are underestimating how bloody and awful war can be 
because they think of it as a distant memory instead of a recent uh, truth. And, and that's what this whole novel is. It's, it's not a distant, I mean, it's not a recent truth. It's a distant memory that has this little sliver of recent truth through Rosa and through Henry. And I think Charles Bond, to some extent, I think Charles Bond is receding into the history Whereas Thomas Sutpen is pulled is being pulled forward even into the modern day, and that's why I say the antebellum South and and the Civil War and the Confederacy. I think of those as three three distinct things, just as those are three distinct people, because really, who who is the one that lasts the longest? It's not the Civil War. The Civil War ends. It's not the Confederacy. The Confederacy is over, and they readmit to the Union. It's the antebellum South. That, that's still looking for a new heir and still trying to get somebody pregnant and trying to find a way, even in his last bright dying breaths, to find that heir because Bond's dead and Henry's dead. Or not, Henry's, Henry's not dead. Henry's a uh, fugitive and, and you know can't be the rightful heir because of lo- the law enforcement. And so there's this element of Charles Bond was the rightful heir just like Bonnie Prince Charlie was the rightful heir to the English throne. Um, but there's this element of, you know, the brother, you know, brother against brother. Well, it, you know, the, the, the Civil War was a, a war between the states and a war among bro- the Brotherhood of America. But here are two brothers that are on the same side, and they still fight, and, you know, one still kills the other. And I think that that's, there's a message in that that says, just because you're on the same side doesn't mean you're fighting for the same thing. And... Um, it ultimately is a personal murder. It's not a. It's not an impersonal um, killing in a, in a war setting. It's it's a personal murder, um, and I think it's you know in some ways it, it makes the story a tragedy. Uh, but as we'll talk about when we talk about the the title, um, you know whose tragedy is this? So that could be coming up in an episode or two. But next next time we're going to be talking about Shreve and Quentin. So we'll look forward to another episode of Summer Reading with the Deals, Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.